0: Hello, and welcome to the Charter Cities Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lutter, the founder and executive director of the Charter Cities Institute. On the Charter Cities Podcast, we illuminate the various aspects of building a charter city, from governance to urban planning, politics to finance. We hope listeners to the Charter Cities Podcast will come away with a deep understanding of charter cities, as well as the steps necessary to build them. You can subscribe and learn more about charter cities at CharterCitiesInstitute.org. Follow us on social media: CCI.City on Twitter and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. Thank you for listening. My guest today is Yomi Ademola. He is the Country Head for Nigeria for Endeavor, the largest urban real estate development company in Africa. Thanks for coming on the show, Yomi.
1: Thanks for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Great. So to start. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? You have a law degree from Georgetown University, and now you're building cities in Nigeria. So what's the in-between?
1: So from an early age, I had an interest in becoming a lawyer. I come from a family of lawyers and judges. The last thing I thought I'd end up doing is being involved in um, real estate professionally or, or building cities. Part of my time in the States, which encompassed an Undergraduate degree where I studied political science and international relations, and then studying law, my JD at Georgetown, which had an international law focus, was with a view to getting as much experience and exposure in the various fields that I specialized in, which were corporate finance and project finance, so that I could get back to Nigeria and um, see how I could contribute and fit in professionally. So after Georgetown, I Notwithstanding my passion for a courtroom, pursued a career in corporate finance, big law law firm, transitioned to London because the majority of the work that was Africa focused was out of London or out of Paris for uh, Anglophone and Francophone Africa and transitioned into another law firm and ultimately got headhunted into an investment bank called Renaissance Capital. And as you may know, the Renaissance Group, where Renaissance Capital sits, is where Endeavor was born. So, that began the journey back home uh, with the investment bank uh, back to Lagos to set up the platform of the business in Nigeria and in other other cities across the continent, the African continent. And ultimately, we spun out from our principal investment arm, Renaissance Partners, into what is today Rendever.
0: Well, great. And can you talk a little bit more about Rendever? I mean, you're building cities, but what does that mean? What countries do you operate in? What kind of started the vision from? right, like asset management in Russia to building cities in, in Nigeria or in Africa. What was that transition like? And then what is the kind of vision of rendezvous What are you actually doing on the ground?
1: So rendezvous is currently the largest private city developer on the African continent. We have a portfolio that's comprised of over 12,000 hectares of land under development in seven cities, which are in five countries. So we have two projects in Nigeria, one in Lagos, the commercial capital, and one in Abuja, the political capital. We have two projects in Ghana, also here in West Africa, in Accra, the political capital, and in Takoradi, the oil and gas hub. We have our East African flagship project in Nairobi, in Kenya, called Tattoo City, and also a project in Lusaka, Zambia, called Roma Park and one in the Democratic Republic of Congo called Kiswishi, which is in the Katanga region. In terms of how we got started, through the principal investment arm, Renaissance Partners, we made uh, acquisitions across uh, various industries. And uh, one of the investments in Kenya, which is our first project, Tattoo City, was in a a private coffee plantation, the largest uh, private coffee plantation in East Africa, which is still operational today. It was significant land holding that included quite a bit of excess land. And ultimately, a decision was taken to undertake a best use of land analysis and decide what to do from a productivity perspective um, with a portion of this excess land. And the end result of that process was us deciding to go through a reclassification application and, and process for the zoning of the land to secure a mixed-use or comprehensive development zoning status, and then to undertake the regular course uh, data collection and master planning processes, which resulted in us uh, creating a a new city-scale project called Tatu City, which was, in the first instance, about 1,000 hectares in size and uh, expanded to its present size 2,000 hectares. On the back of that exercise and recognizing the value that had been created, Uh, on the back of initiating the the activity, the actual operations of the the master development or developer arm, we identified and were approached by different parties with opportunities across the continent. And so um, opportunity by opportunity, we engaged in extensive due diligence, site selection, and we grew gradually, country by country. Zambia and DR Congo coming next, with some overlap in Ghana, and uh, Nigeria is the newest member of the portfolio. And Alaro City in Lagos, where I am today, and the Lekki Free Zone, is actually the most recent addition to the portfolio.
0: Great, thanks. And so, can you, I guess, go into a little bit more detail? You say, right, you're building cities, you've given a size, uh, like the amount of the land, 1,500 hectares to up to 2,000 in Tatu City. But, right, like for our listeners who don't really know what it means to build a city, right, like what are the Intermediate steps. Okay, you have the land and eventually you have, let's say, I don't know, 100, 200,000 people living there, but kind of walk us through this process of how you kind of think about the build out, how you structure all of the kind of discussions and the approach that you're doing.
1: So the process for us starts with the site selection process. So to go into a little more detail on the thinking and the rationale. So across Africa, we have a number of countries. We identify the countries that we believe from a macroeconomic perspective have the right dynamics for us to go in and invest this capital with a realistic expectation of, of a return over time. We, within these countries, identify the cities, many of which are plagued with the same issues. A uh, significant amount of congestion and the existing built-up cities, given the population growth and the rate of urbanization. A lot of people moving in at a very rapid pace from rural areas, to the urban centers for economic opportunities and very congested, built-up urban areas as a result. So we identify parcels of land that have good, clean title. We have to profile the existing ownership, generally falls into three buckets, owned by the state, the government, owned by traditional host communities who tend to be collectively the owners of some of the largest amounts of undeveloped land. In the jurisdictions that we're in and then sometimes we do have uh, private parties either a company for instance i mentioned kenya we acquired a large coffee plantation which was from a company and so we we partner with or acquire from a, a company on the back of the extensive due diligence which looks at amongst other things obviously the root of title the surety of title because it is a land business title is very fundamental And that is the title we'll ultimately be passing on to, in one way or the other, to our our clients and off-takers and neighbors. We also look at the connectivity of the site from the perspective of infrastructure, primarily road, electricity, water, to get a sense for the requirements to catalyze the site and to create these city destinations in the various states that we're in. We also look at the... Strategic positioning or location of the site in terms of direction and pace of growth, the projections for future public and private development in the axis. As an example, about eight years ago, we identified the Lekki Free Zone, where we are today in Lagos, as a very strategic location in terms of nationwide distribution, and Nigeria being the largest economy on the continent and, and also obviously, of the region, we knew that with the coming seaport, which is the deepest seaport in West Africa, and the proposed international airport that was located in this axis, and with the free zone, which was already in existence, an initiative of the state government, which is the largest free zone in West Africa, it's 16,500 hectares, we knew that something special was going to happen in this axis, particularly when you look at the amount of road and other infrastructure that was either being deployed or planned, so we took a strategic decision to get out there as early as possible, to identify an ideal location in the Axis and then to start the process. So what are the other steps of the process? We go through the regulatory process on the back of extensive studies, feasibility studies, business cases put together, the site-specific data collection, topography, surveys, soil tests, everything. And we work with world-class master planners, both internationally and locally, To plan out a city tied into these other contextual pieces of information that have helped us to select the site Uh, and tends to end up helping us to take a view on what the focus of or immediate focus in most cases of the city will be and I say immediate focus because we build into our master plans an element of resiliency to allow for adaptability over time and based on the market's response so In some cases, we end up going full throttle initially across various uses, but maybe with a focus on industrial, commercial logistics uses. And in other cases, we find that based on the specific location and the dynamics of the market, we end up spending a lot of time um, promoting and developing residential development and residential uses of land. One thing that is constant is we, as the master developer, retain responsibility and control for two key aspects which is the infrastructure and the government structure within the constraints of the law of the relevant jurisdiction so for instance in all of our projects we are responsible for the roads all the bulk civil infrastructure the roads we provide all the, the utilities we create a one-stop shop from a utility perspective which is a key value proposition in our markets where we are present so from water to potable water to unreliable uh, access to water to Reliable access to power, 24 7 power, sewage, drainage, and obviously all the other aspects uh, in terms of connectivity and thought process behind how we uh, position and locate the various uh, uses so that they're complementary, synergistic. Our residential areas are typically planned to create very livable environments. For instance, our master plan in Alara City, which we worked on with Cityscape, a local master planning firm, a market leader. And Skidmore Owings and Merrill, SOM out of their London office, but which is an American firm, an international firm ultimately, but origins in the States. We're very deliberate about creating in every residential area, on every single residential plot, we have planned such that within a five minute walking distance, you can walk to developments that are located on different land uses that are targeted at catering for your week-to-week, day-to-day lives. So from retail, to education, to green spaces, to mixed-use plots, uh, you should be able to, generally speak within five minutes, get to what you need to get to from a week-to-week uh, livability perspective. And in addition to that, again, speaking to value propositions and livability and sustainability of the, the live-work-play and invest uh, ethos we have for these cities, we do encourage and promote walking. We have sidewalks, which is not something you see in all of the markets we're in, or if you see not regularly. We have cycling lanes that promote cycling and ease of connectivity between places on bike. We tend to provide walking, jogging trails through connected ecosystem of green spaces. We have over 150 hectares of green spaces on our project. In lekki here as an example, out of the first 1,000 hectares, So a lot of time and thought goes into the land use, the initial development focus in terms of top structures and deliberately targeting and working to attract clients. But as a general matter, our our cities are mixed use, mixed income, and we are market-led. So we follow the demand and we try to meet it as best we can. And then we we have a very open mindset to, to what the needs are and the market demands are. That said, That has to sit side by side with the other component I mentioned, which is the governance structure. We have a prescriptive zoning regime that has a process for appropriate amendment over time. But we do effectively maintain a private development control regime for how things are built, building material, the height restrictions, the setbacks, what you can use your plot for to make sure that we maintain value over time for the clients, the neighbors, and for the residual value on the land that is is being developed, yet to be developed. I think for most of our projects, we've also been fortunate in that we have either keyed into or have been able to procure either free zone status or free trade zone status or special economic zone status, which tends to then give us some additional layers of control in coordination with government, and gives us some additional value propositions, particularly in the areas of ease of business, in terms of approvals, in terms of registrations, in terms of uh, registers, registries, and particularly for industrialists, in terms of the relationship to uh, the customs and immigration regime for things like uh, expat quotas, foreign employees, ownership, incentives that attract investments such as uh, no duty, no tax, corporate income tax, withholding tax, no VAT. So I would say out of our projects in Kenya, in Zambia, and in Nigeria, we have free trade zone status or special economic zone status. And we are in the process of securing special economic zone status in Accra, in Ghana. Just to add a word about what this ultimately looks like, the typical project, you know, as mentioned, tends to encompass you know, 1,000 hectares, 2,000 hectares which is about 2,500 acres to 5,000 acres for the listeners that are more familiar with acres and we end up providing roughly you know 65 to 75,000 residents providing for and ultimately having 65 to 75,000 residents and also 30 to 50,000 daily visitors.
0: Great. Uh, that was very comprehensive. I definitely want to dive into some of those points you raised but before doing that, let's, I guess, go out a little bit on a more of a macro scale view. So in the U.S., you don't often hear about people building new cities. When you hear about it, it's kind of retirement communities in Florida. So what is the demand for new cities in, in Africa? Why is there kind of this? Why do you think that's such an attractive market?
1: Yeah, so I think this speaks to the point raised about, or the two points raised about the rate of urbanization, which is, I believe, one of the highest, if not the highest in the world. Maybe fastest rate of urbanization in the history of the world in terms of how quickly we have people moving from rural to urban areas and the nature of where the economic opportunities in our markets are concentrated. And so when you have that resulting congestion and infrastructure, you see the traffic, it's hard to go in and fix and maintain existing infrastructure. There is a lot of desire and demand for clean, aesthetically pleasing, organized, orderly, Predictable environments in terms of what happens on your plot, what happens on the next plot, in terms of security, in terms of even access to land that is supported by by services, so service land. It's something that may sound very foreign to people that are not in these jurisdictions, but to be in an environment where it is uh, safe, aesthetically pleasing, there's access to water, power, you have your ICT set up, sewage, and you can get significant size parcels of land, because most of the attractive industrial areas and residential areas, as mentioned, are already taken. They are under significant demand. There's a lot of congestion in between there and other places. So to create locations where you you can do your investment, you can live, you can have new and good and better schools, and all within a controlled and aesthetically pleasing environment is a very fundamental need and demand for a lot of industries and a lot of individuals in these markets.
0: Great. And how do you, uh, I guess, envision your cities, for example, Alara City, fitting into the broader regional development? So Lagos, by some projections, is supposed to have around 80 million people by 2100. It is relatively sort of congested, a little bit chaotic. How do you view your developments as kind of fitting into that broader regional growth, those growth patterns?
1: Yeah. So I think I always make reference to the the Africa rising narrative and you know, we, we, most of us within our company, do not see that, that narrative as a cliche. Given the dramatic uh, significant improvements in the, the education status, security, health status of these uh, markets, and the people, relatively consistent growth in these markets over the last 20 or so years, and the improvements we're seeing in, in governance and in political process and political competition, all of these factors being material drivers and underlying the Africa-rising narrative, developments like ours will literally house the next wave of growth across the continent. And our hope is that we will attract and continue to attract investments, new skill set, we will be creating jobs, we will be facilitating transfer of technology, and will play a role in making Africa a, a premium investment destination, and a force forced to be reckoned with on a global scale in terms of opportunity. And so the role that we play is, is only one of many roles that will be a factor in this narrative playing out. And in our case, we actually are in a very unique and I believe advantageous position because Alaró City is, for instance, a public-private partnership where we bring the political will and capacity of the state government, which is a very progressive state government, Lagos state government, and we match that with the vision, expertise, and the patient capital and commitment of the private sector investment to a shared goal, which is creating more jobs, attracting more investment, increasing the infrastructure development across the state and the region, lowering the housing gap, and hopefully we're able to do this in a way that is responsible, sustainable, and profitable. And in a way that the stakeholders, including local communities, can benefit from and key into.
0: Great. I definitely want to get into because I, I think your point about patient capital is an important one. In talking to similar projects across Africa, one of the I guess the things that stands out is there's a variety of different financing models and there some of the projects definitely do have trouble attracting capital and so figuring out exactly how to I guess unleash these capital flows given the, the booming sort of demographics, the booming market is something that that you guys seem to have figured out. But before, I guess, delving into that, let me just ask, how do you view your developments compared to other new city developments? I mean, so in Nigeria alone, we can think of Abuja, which was a planned city in the 70s, the, the capital city, and also cities like Echo Atlantic, And then if we think back uh, kind of historically, we can think of China's rapid urbanization with cities like Shenzhen in 40 years uh, going from practically nothing to being world-class cities. You can think of Singapore, Hong Kong, Dubai. We can also think of Brasilia as a government-led master plan city. In the U.S., we have Irvine, California, a private developed city that has about, I think they're at 280,000 residents with a world-class university. So where do you look and kind of draw inspiration from And where do you look and see, okay, well, that might not be something that we kind of want to follow with our developments?
1: Well, I think we draw inspiration from a number of sources. And we have looked at and visited private developments. We've looked at PPPs. We've also looked at and been inspired by government initiatives, such as new capitals, like Abuja, for instance, as you mentioned. You also mentioned Brasilia. And so when you look at, even within our portfolio, no two projects are the same. And so one thing I have recognized is that one of the things that makes all these projects similar is that there is an appreciation for keying into the vision of a scale, which is a city scale uh, project that can have a critical mass and have impactful effect. There is also a commitment to creating a new classification or a new standard, a new quality, embracing best of class. And leapfrogging in terms of technology and, and otherwise where possible. I think that when you look at the nature and the opportunity of private cities like Alara, like Eco-Atlantic, like our uh, general project, when one looks forward we acknowledge there are and we be for a while significant infrastructural and housing gaps despite best efforts of, of governments and even very well performing governments. But when we do look at the rate of urbanization and are realistic about the rate of infrastructure development, it's clear that projects like ours can help bridge the gap, whether they're completely private or a combination of private and public state coming together. So, you know, on these new cities, there is already a significant body of evidence. There is proof of concept that these cities attract, in many cases, much-needed investment, including foreign direct investment, uh, including by first-time entrance into the market. Our very first client, Adelano City, is from an investor with Kenyan, Canadian, and also um, Indian shareholders who have never done any business in Nigeria. And one of the reasons they were able to make a relatively quick decision was because of the attractive demographics and the opportunities that Nigeria and Lagos Stadium, in particular, clearly present, but also because of the credibility of the developers on the private side, Endeavor, and also the platform that was being created within a free trade zone regime that was very attractive and had to be taken very seriously. And they were able to look at Nigeria through a brand new lens because of the Alaro City uh, platform in the Leki free trade zone and were able to make some pretty impressive and decisive moves that have seen them uh, create the largest ready-to-use therapeutic food production facility in Africa, right here in Alaro City uh, in Lagos. So when we look at the amount of investment, the amount of technology, the jobs that we can create, we can promote, when we look at opportunities to fast-track infrastructural development and reduce that housing, FSA create jobs and other economic opportunities, I think that the role that projects like ours can play are actually prime examples of how PPPs, public private partnerships, can work and be catalysts for rapid economic development, particularly in these times with constraints on government coffers.
0: Yeah, so that's, I guess, one is there's, I guess, the obvious question of how has the coronavirus affected how you've seen demand, how you've seen kind of government engagement. I mean, Nigeria is an oil economy. I forget the exact numbers, but a substantial portion of Nigeria's government budget is from oil. So, how has COVID kind of affected what you see on the ground, and how has that uh, affected the demand that you see for your services?
1: Yeah, so COVID and what we're experiencing on the ground, but also globally, is, to my mind, I think unprecedented. And while most industries have felt the, the impact of this novel pan- pandemic, and especially when you consider the entire world has slowed down in the last few months, we have been quite fortunate in that. The, the extensive efforts over the last 18 months. This project uh, launched in January 2019. Alaro City launched in January 2019. And uh, we presently have 27 industrial or commercial off takers, in addition to hundreds of residential off takers. And that is on the back of a very deliberate, targeted campaign to create awareness and is, I think, a testament to the market's acceptance and uh, response recognition of the the offering of Alara City. And when you consider that pre-COVID and through COVID, we have, on average, onboarded no less than one new industrial or commercial offtaker every single month, including every month this year, including during the months of the lockdown, we had a government-mandated restriction on, on movements. When you consider that the level of demand for this very fundamental need was such that uh, on both the residential and the industrial funds, transactions kept going, and in one month in particular, exceeded pre-COVID activity. It's a testament to how much this very fundamental need is not being met in the market. So if you consider that Lagos State is the smallest state in Nigeria in terms of the geographic land size, and is also the most populous state in the country, you get a sense for this demand-supply dynamic when it comes to places to live in a dignified manner and the opportunities that people are looking for to set up new businesses, expand more secure jobs. So, you know, for us, there's been also a very responsive and proactive government intervention during COVID. I think Lagos State in particular has shown a lot of leadership and capacity in managing the situation on the ground. And the people of Lagos are very resilient. The industries here are exceptionally entrepreneurial and resilient. And so I think we have benefited from these factors, which we have always known is what Lagos offers.
0: Great. And let's, I guess, delve a little bit more into the financing. Building a city has relatively high upfront capital costs from the acquisition of land. I mean, potentially you could do a kind of joint venture where you you aren't required to do those initial capital outlays. And also in terms of providing like electricity, potable water, sewage, roads. So how have you guys approached these, I don't know, large upfront infrastructure costs and how were you able to bring the investors on board given that Africa is not always kind of the, I don't know, premier investment market for large sums of capital?
1: So as mentioned prior, yeah, the costs start and they start even pre-acquisition. You know, there's extensive due diligence, which is costly to be candid to ensure that we get off to... right start on sure footing which is the essence for everything we do in the land business in terms of location in terms of surety of title in terms of right location of the site and considerable sums are spent there and yes we do have a full spectrum of structures that we've participated in as you've mentioned from joint ventures public private partnerships and outright acquisitions. And we've done, and even with the partnerships, we've, we've done them with the state, we've done them with the host community. When you look at our portfolio across the seven projects. So we've seen, in quotation marks, we've seen it all. And all of them involve considerable sums of money, even the joint ventures and the PPPs. I think that for us, to be responsive to your question, we are, again, fortunate that we have a meeting of minds between a absolutely committed group of shareholders who are incredibly visionary and successful in their own rights in various walks of life and business. And they have a commitment and a will to execute this vision, this business plan we've put together on the back of the vision, which goes back many years when the team of investors, so to speak, uh, came together to pursue this business. And so, you know, Rendeva has no third party debt. Our projects are funded by our core shareholders, or should I say by our shareholders. We ultimately execute and also fund partially from our cash flows of so running the business like every other business. But it is clear that to make it through the economic and political shocks that these markets and all markets over time present, it really comes down to the vision and financial capacity of the shareholders of Endeavor in our case.
0: Oh, great. Thanks. And so to go a little bit back, you spoke previously about kind of choosing locations and some of the due diligence that went into that. So you're operating in some countries that I think, at least from my semi-outsider perspective, have kind of are at different stages of development. So Kenya and Nigeria per capita incomes, a little bit over $1,500 annually. Both have democracies and then the Democratic of Republic, which you are also in, is much poorer and hasn't been as kind of successful in developing some of these uh, democratic institutions. And so what have you seen in terms of operating in these different markets, in terms of like the ease of doing business, in terms of how effectively that you were able to execute?
1: Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. I had the fortune of um, being involved in each and every one of our projects in, in some way or form including in most cases the early stages in terms of commencement. So I can speak a little bit to this. One of the key just to get to the upshot up front, one of the key factors that I think is a requirement for this type of business and is something that from an early stage we latched on to in Endeavour is the need to have a and this is something that started in the Renaissance group days and with the Ren business where we were the first International investment bank uh, that was emerging and frontier markets facing to set up full scale investment banking and financial services platforms on the ground in multiple African cities where you would walk in and have the same level of service experience and capacity, whether you were in London, in New York, in Moscow, or in Lagos or Nairobi. And that mindset was carried along into our business, Rendeva it is absolutely uh, mission critical for us to have local knowledge, local leadership, local capacity, local understanding of the various markets we are in because of the differences that you highlighted and other differences that are relevant to an effective due diligence exercise And just for the record, there are markets we have uh, investigated. There are countries we have looked at going into. There are specific sites we have assessed and have not pursued. And it is on the back of this local capacity blended with a very high quality group structure that brings in some of the best financing, uh, real estate development and execution, uh, minds and resources that we come together to do something site and jurisdiction specific on a project-by-project basis. So, you will find that in countries like the DR Congo, we uh, have considered multiple locations and multiple jurisdictions. There is a reason we decided ultimately to go for a project located in the natural resource-rich Katanga region, which is a semi-autonomous region of the DRC that has a lot of uh, natural resources that has a lot of investment in that space and where we have a project that is, of course, mixed use in nature, but initially more focused on the the more immediate demand, which is linked to logistics, which is linked to housing and worker housing. And to understand and identify that opportunity comes from putting in the time and having the right people on the ground to work with and to, to pursue the vision the same thing in Nigeria you know many people locally let alone from outside of the state or the country were surprised when in 2010 we were talking about the location that we have today uh, which is widely regarded as a highly strategic and premium location particularly for industrialists and logisticians it is something that it is a location that most people did not fully appreciate years ago was actually going to become one of the leading industrial Hubs and trade routes in the country. And so, again, that came about from extensive investigation, research, due diligence, and being on the ground. We are fortunate that, given our origins from the Renaissance Group, we do have a wide platform and exposure to almost all of these markets that we ultimately went into. I think that's a key factor for us.
0: Great, thanks. And can you talk about, I guess, how you? get this demand for your products, for your services? Because at least one of the core challenges that we often think about inside the Charter Cities Institute is getting those first movers. Nobody wants to move to a city and be the first person there because there's no supermarket, there's no grocery store, there's nothing to do at night, there's no jobs. And so getting this critical mass of people in a city is important because without that critical mass, you don't really have anything. So how do you think about Getting that kind of critical mass of first movers to really jumpstart the amount of activity in area, or have you found that this is just the kind of this isn't the right framing for the challenge at all
1: I think that's the correct framing I think it's a, it's a great question It's something that in a very city uh, market specific manner we have to address and so for us, you know one of our beliefs is that uh, commerce is what catalyzes growth and you know, it is the fact that, you know, people and businesses are two clear drivers of economic development in any city. And if you focus on attracting the right businesses and economic players and creating the right enabling environment, which includes the right planning and infrastructure, and that includes the right regime in terms of, um, for us, our free trade zone and special economic zones um, and beyond, I think of it as creating what I refer to. Uh, regularly as an economic heartbeat, once you get that critical mass of first movers, typically in the industrial uh, commercial space, and again, remember the dynamics as example for Alara City, where it is hard to find large parcels of land that have good title and can evidence a clear root of title, and that are fully serviced in terms of um, the fundamentals of power and the water and the rest. To have as an added benefit, these tax and duty benefits and this one-stop shop scenario with a very high standard of security, free zones being areas that are demarcated from the customs territory, there is controlled access, egress. We have focused on the industrial and commercial. You get your critical mass going and it becomes self-propelling. The ecosystems come in, the bankers come, the residents need a place to stay, they need a place to recreate. It is an aesthetically pleasing environment, it's an efficient environment, it's a livable environment. We do have to be very deliberate in creating that supply for the demand, understanding the demand. One thing that people de- demand, for instance here, is a safe, clean place to take walks in a non-congested environment without the fumes from generators, without uh, excessive traffic, noise and noise pollution and other pollution from the exhaust. So. The cycling lanes and the sidewalks, the walking pavements, which again for other markets may seem, you know, almost may be considered almost a right. And so such an easy aspect of infrastructure to overlook here is actually a unique value proposition and a unique selling point. So understanding that about the market and meeting that demand is able to get the first movers out there quickly. But for business, what we found is Having the right framework and creating the right administration to implement, not every free zone is effective. Not every free zone is able to facilitate that you will accrue the benefits that are provided under law or regulation. So there's still a lot to be done in terms of training, in terms of understanding people's businesses, in terms of smoothing the logistics between port and free zone, and ensuring that people can come and be more profitable and more focused in your location. So. Um, how we attract is by being absolutely committed to being best of class, not just in the planning of the infrastructure, not just in the aesthetic, not just in our marketing and awareness campaigns, but also in the service side of the business in terms of uh, customer experience, particularly with respect to the free zone administration and how people are able to benefit from their license plate registrations for their vehicles, that experience as compared to the experience you will have in the customs territory. The ease of business and the money, or should I say, the ease of logistics and the cost effectiveness when it comes to the time you spend and the money you spend to bring in every container into the free zone versus into the customs territory, the speed with which you can secure your incorporation documents for your new company in the free zone versus the customs territory. All of these factors, uh, again, constitute a bucket of unique value propositions that we create awareness around, and which attract those first movers, and then it tends to self-propel.
0: Great, and yeah, I definitely want to get into the governance, into the free zone status soon, but before then, let's talk I guess a little bit more about the urban plan. So you said how, right, you have this master plan, and it's a little bit dynamic to adjust for changes in demand. And so one of the kind of discussions in the office that we frequently have is how to balance planning versus the emergence of a city. So if we think about a lot of master-planned cities, we look at them and they tend to be a little bit overplanned. Brasilia, for example, it's not walkable at all. The average commuting time, particularly for poor residents, is extremely high. It was built, you can actually go sort of read interviews with the key architect, who's like, I don't care if people like it today. The question is, in the thousand years, will people look at it uh, as a monument, as this kind of great creation? which I think is the wrong kind of framing for cities. You think about the residents, the actual consumers of the cities. But this balancing act, right, you do want order, obviously, but you also want to acknowledge that if you're engaging in this 10-, 20-year development project, then what you think is going to happen might not happen, and so you have to be able to adjust it in the future. So how do you think about balancing this need for order as well as the kind of organic emergence of cities in terms of the urban plan?
1: I think that's another great question. I think we start with the fundamental that, yes, of course, master plans are dynamic, as you said. They're living and breathing documents, but there are and must be constraints. Most of the cities in the jurisdictions where we are, most of these cities are to some degree being held back by a lack of planning and efficient land use and also being held back by red tape and regulatory blockages And the result, or one of the results, is sprawling, fragmented, informal developments cities that are not very efficient and are not uh, ultimately very desirable. And so we are absolutely committed to proper planning. New cities, especially the ones we are developing, which are required to address some of the fundamental and structural deficiencies found in these cities on the continent is a focus for us, that proper planning. But as you mentioned, and as I mentioned earlier, well, one thing I will say is that you learn from your experiences and you learn from other people's experiences. This aspect of over-planning is something that was highlighted to us very early in part of our research and in part of our uh, work with um, partners, consultants, and the rest. And so for us, it's important within the context of, yes, your feasibility, yes, your market study, and determining how you are going to kickstart and catalyze this project to the point we just discussed about creating that critical mass and catalyzing the cities. But beyond that, we are, again, deliberate in building in this aspect of flexibility to accommodate, within the constraints of adherence, to the fundamental development guidelines, some aspects of consistency, uniformity, not frustrating the connectivity of these cities and the fundamental principles of the master plan we create in the beginning. We also have to be very realistic and open to external factors beyond our control, such as government policies, you know, the realities of trade and trade routes within the region or the country. And there's so many things, including consumer behavior, that will ultimately impact what we do and where. And so we actually just build that into our business plan, we build that into our mindset, but we are also very much of the opinion that the value that we offer includes a predictability that you can expect when you come to our cities. you know, we plan, we revisit plans, we replan as required, but we stay true to the fundamental principles of a well-done initial master plan.
0: Great. You operate in a lot of markets that have currencies that might not be entirely stable. So Zambia, for example, is in the middle of a debt crisis. I haven't looked at the statistics recently, but I'm sure the currency is depreciating relatively rapidly. So how do you, I guess, adjust for those risks? And how do you think about, because oftentimes, I don't obviously don't know how you're, what you receive investments in, but a lot of times in emerging markets, the investments are denominated in U.S. dollars, where then if there's a, a local currency crisis, then you're stuck with a relatively high kind of debt liability compared to what the assets are worth. So how do you, I guess, balance that risk of working in these markets that don't have stable currencies?
1: Mm. So another great question. Within the constraints of the, the laws of the land, within the relative respective jurisdiction, we tend to mitigate currency risk. And your assumption is correct, at least for us, that the investment is a hard currency investment and typically U.S. dollar. And because of that, within the constraints of of the law of each jurisdiction, we try to implement two general currency mitigation, currency risk mitigation strategies. One is within the free zones or special economic zones, part of their DNA that attracts this investment, not just by us as the zone developer and manager, but by the brand new foreign direct investors and others who come in, is a legal framework or regime that permits investment in foreign currency, permits you to charge for your goods, your services, your space in foreign currency in US dollars, and does not restrict repatriation of your foreign currency returns on investment. And so that regime, which if it did not exist, could be a problem in certain markets where there are significant currency controls, is a key differentiator and has really been part of the uh, enabling environment to attract the types of investments that we have and are attracting. The other aspect, again, within municipal laws of respective jurisdictions. I don't want to speak for all countries at the same time, but another tool that is used or strategy that is used is to dollar link your pricing. And so you effectively have a hedge against devaluation. A $100 today is X, $50 payment today is Y, and the $50 balance payment in six months from now will be Z, and it will all float. And link to the present-day exchange rate for the dollar to local currency, and in that way, you then have some administrative work to do in terms of timely treasury management and managing your local currency risk on the back end. But I think that's just regular course part of business. You get the appropriate equivalent local currency and manage your FX risk by converting to the US dollar or hard currency, and you also can in our free zone, especially economic zones, accept dollar payments directly.
0: Great. And so let's get into the governance. Typically, at least we think about these kind of two layers of governance for city developments. One is the traditional governance that's on a city level, which is things like zoning, things, land use, uh, sometimes policing, some education. And then there are also kind of the special economic zone or charter cities aspects which might include things like business registration, things like a one-stop shop, separate uh, labor regime. So how have you approached governance? And then particularly, let's, I guess, focus on the Alaro City because it's in the Leckie Free Trade Zone. So what type of autonomy do you have and how has that benefited the development of the city?
1: So with Alaro City, we have keyed into a national legal framework. There is the NEPSA Act which is the basis for establishing the uh, NEPSA authority, Nigerian Export Processing Zones Authority, the Nigerian Export Processing Zones Act, and all the free zones, export processing zones in the country have their regulations, their gazettes, fundamentally based on this law, which has been in effect for a while, so it's well settled. What do we have as part of The Leki Free Zone, which is a free zone, again, as mentioned, the largest in the region in West Africa, by way of governance regime. We, as the zone promoter or developer, have been authorized on the back of an application process by the NEPSA authority to manage the zone, which includes some responsibility for developing the bulk civil infrastructure, for securing the site, for working with government. Under a one-stop shop framework, we have been allocated representatives from the various relevant organs of state, from the Immigration Service to Customs, to the Police Force, Department of State Security, obviously NEPSA itself, the Free Zone Authority, and we work hand in hand. We have a layer of engagement and training that is specific to Alaro City, and how we engage with off-takers to enhance the ease of business from a one-stop-shop perspective. We are authorized to be the sole interface with the primary interface with the customers, with the off-takers, with the entrance to the zone. So at any given time for registering a vehicle, registering security, as in collateral, incorporating a company, arranging for a duty-free cargo to come into the zone from the ports, airports, seaports, from ground transport across the land borders, the user of the free zone interfaces with a private sector participant who is well-trained, who is customer focused and friendly, and who on the back end is effectively and efficiently supported by a well-trained layer of government representatives across the relevant spectrum. So within the zone, the usual benefits, attributes apply with respect to no duty, no tax, again, no restriction on repatriation of the capital, no foreign ownership restrictions. We are also the on the back of a holistic and comprehensive planning process that is approved by the state, on the back of conducting our environmental and social impact assessments approved by the state. We also then, in as part of this zone manager role, have responsibility for, with government, subsequent EI, Essays for off-takers and for approving building plans and designs and for enforcing the approved development guidelines for Alara City. So that is a, I mean, it is a quite awesome responsibility and a comprehensive one. So it tends to involve a number of people. And in three general brackets, I would say it involves the Rendeavor team. It involves the government officials that are attached to Alara City, and their colleagues who are in headquarters and other offices. And it involves external professionals working with rendezvous and the government officials to provide a seamless service and experience for the users of Alara City.
0: Great. And you mentioned that a lot of, a number of rendezvous projects also have free zone or special economic zone status. I know Tatu City in Kenya has some degree of special economic zone status. So how have you seen those different governance regimes differ in your different projects in different countries, and what do you think has been the effect on market demand with those different governance regimes?
1: Yeah. So I think, fortunately, and in some cases, it is actually by design, particularly where we have been part of helping to shape the framework for the special economic zone regime or status for our project, there are a lot of similarities. There are, of course, differences. So, For instance, two of the differences that just come to mind, and, and please recall I'm not part of the management team of all these other projects. Um, but I do know that, for instance, the approach to security is different between different free zones. Many free zones will allow you to secure the regime, the status, the benefits, but maybe are silent on questions of police presence. Uh, again, in our case, Department of State Security and the rest. So you would see a different level of coordination and mandatory coordination or involvement by the state security agencies. Another example is the term or the tenor for the benefits in question. So for some free zones, what you will see is you have the benefits that apply to duty or tax apply for a time period, a time limit, they're time bound. So you have um, benefits or no tax for say 10 years. 20 years. And then in other projects, such as Alara City, they apply in perpetuity. So there's no uh, time restriction by law. In some free zones, the benefits accrue only for products that are for export, for instance. And so you will not pay tax and you will not pay duty so long as the finished goods are for purpose of export. Whereas in some free zones, such as Alaro City, there is express documented approval for up to 100% of production within the zone to come into the customs territory. So the one thing that I think we try to, at least from a rendezvous perspective, achieve is the law of the land is the law of the land, and we are absolutely compliant with that. And within that context, we try to create awareness as to the opportunities available, in terms of the free zone regime for the specific jurisdiction. And we emphasize city-specific training to promote and enhance, optimize the ease of business and the customer experience. So that's something you see across all of the projects. And then we key into and maximize the ability of our off-takers to benefit from the free zone incentives and benefits on offer in that particular city.
0: Great. And so, my last question when you think about, I guess, building companies, at least one of the the things that's often focused on in Silicon Valley is the culture of a company. Because as you scale, it's important to make sure you have a culture that is proactive, is entrepreneurial, and gets things done. So, one of the discussions that we've started having in the office is about a culture of a, a city. How do you focus on creating a good city culture, a good kind of civic life that leads to these better outcomes? over a longer time horizon that might be a little bit difficult to quantify. So have you thought about, for Alaro City, for example, have you thought about what it means to create a city culture? And if so, what steps have you taken to help develop that culture?
1: Yes, yes, we have. Again, an excellent question and one we spent a lot of time thinking about and discussing for Alaro City and for all of our projects in Endeavor. The culture of a city is developed around shared experiences. And for us at Alaro City, we believe, as we do for all of our other cities in their Endeavor portfolio, that we must build cities that promote a livable and a sustainable lifestyle. This is, in many respects, hardwired into our process from master planning to building and operating these and managing these cities. After all, our mantra is live, work, play, and, and not just in word, indeed. And, you know, when you look at Alaro City, you moreover, don't just look at it, but track the market's response and reception of Alaro City. Um, it's clear that everyone has taken note of the focus on creating green spaces where residents can relax, where they can explore, where they can, you know, in tune with nature, the quality of our roads, more importantly the pedestrian lanes, the cycling lanes, which again uh, a lot of people in, in other jurisdictions may take for granted, but it's something that the market and the government has taken notice of at Alara City. We hope these will promote healthy living and a means of additional levels of connectivity within the shared experience at Alara City. We have also been deliberate about factoring in shared spaces, such as parks, clubhouses with various amenities that bring people together and, to a prior point, further catalyze the interest in and uptake of of these new cities as they build up uh, and roll out. We create hubs. We are looking at technology. We're looking at art. We are looking at media, including media that promotes innovation, in tune with the theme of excellence and the motto of excellence in Lagos State, we're looking at excellence across these, including culturally and various cultural initiatives and shared spaces. So the fusion of all of these things begin to create a way of life that people at Alaro City can imbibe and they can also be part of the evolution of it over time. And so these shared experiences, even for the most hardcore and focused industrialists, to the individual or family that want to get some residential space as either an investment or for a home, down to the logisticians in their warehouses, the leisure uh, providers, the retailers, the restaurateurs, and even for the visitors that come into Olara City. It's all about shared experiences and high-quality shared experience.
0: Great. Thanks. Before we wrap up, is there any additional information that you would like the audience to know?
1: Well, from somebody who never thought they'd be working in real estate or developing cities, I think that the work that Crowded Cities is doing in creating this level of awareness is critical to people understanding the multiple levels of opportunity and benefit that can come with these types of development. And for a true convert in myself, as somebody who was first in big law and then in banking, on a more personal note, I think, It's really rewarding, and we've talked about the Africa Rising narrative, to be involved in a field where the results, benefits are so tangible. To see virgin, significantly sized, virgin, absolutely virgin, rural, virgin parcels of land developed over time into what nobody thought could be, and to see the jobs that are created, the investment that comes, the quality of the aesthetic, uh, the control and order and efficiency that is a result of a lot of hard work and planning and execution, is really something special and exciting to be a part of. So I think in signing out, it's to to thank you for this opportunity, Mark, and to thank uh, all of the team at Charter Cities for the work that you guys do.
0: Uh, Great, and thanks, I appreciate that. And so with that, we'll wrap it up and you'll see us in two weeks. Thank you, Mark, it's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Charter Cities Podcast. For more information about this episode and our guest, to subscribe to the show, or to connect with the Charter Cities Institute, please visit chartercitiesinstitute.org. Follow us on social media, cci.city on Twitter, and Charter Cities Institute on Facebook. I'm your host, Mark Letter, and thank you for listening to the Charter Cities Podcast.